0: So back in Romans eleven, I want to really help us to recalibrate our thinking in this chapter. Those of you who've been here, "Lords the Evening" by "Lords the Evening," will have recognized we've taken the pains in chapter nine and ten to emphasize that these three chapters are one unified whole. They are dealing with the issue of the rejection of the Jews, rejection of Jesus. By the Jews. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so the three chapters are dealing with the issue of well, if Gentiles have come into the covenant promises of God, what about those to whom the covenants were given? Because Paul's making the point that Abraham and David, they illustrate the salvation enjoyed by Gentiles. And so Gentiles are now those who are in Christ Jesus, but those who rejected Christ, Jewish people, Well, what about the fact that they also were those who received covenant promises? That language has been really the theme of these chapters. And thus, chapter 11 begins by really restating the issue of chapter 9, verse 6. Look at chapter 11. I say then, here's the question, Hath God cast away his people? Undergirding that question is so much Old Testament theology. His people. In what sense are they His people? Well, in terms of covenantal promises, back in chapter 9, and we saw the language there, who are the Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants. The whole thrust of that language is the fact that they are the people of God in the Old Testament. Hath God cast away His covenantal people? The phrase, the language, the cast away, has itself the idea of breaking off the covenant. They are His, but neither are His no longer. And what is, the, what is the situation here? Has God cast away His people? That's the issue of chapter 9, verse 6. You turn back there. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect... The the, the thrust of Paul's argument here is that though Jews by and large have rejected their own Messiah, the word of God has not failed. Why and how? Because of a spiritual seed, because of a remnant, and that's the very thing that Paul returns to here in the opening verse of chapter 9. God has not abandoned his people. Look what he says, verse 2. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. And that reference to the foreknowledge of God is in itself significant. That, of course, ties back to chapter 8 and the verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of a son, that he might be the firstborn among of my brethren. And he continues, those who are predestined, that they are also glorified in verse number 30. And so it's impossible for God to forsake His eternal purposes in casting away His people. But that does not mean that all Israel are saved. Paul therefore returns to his point. Chapter 9, there's the emphasis that all Israel are not of Israel. That within the physical nation of Israel, there is a spiritual seed, a spiritual remnant. And the proof that Paul gives in chapter 11 is twofold. First of all, his own salvation. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I, and the implication is, for I who am saved in Christ also am an Israelite. And therefore, he, he uses his own testimony as proof positive that God has not forsaken his covenant. Proof one, his own personal testimony. Proof two, scriptural principle. And that is the principle of Elias. Verse two, What ye not or know ye not what the scripture saith of Elias or about Elias. Now, what does it say? Well, it describes the situation on Mount or after Mount Carmel, as Elijah is threatened by Jezebel, and he finds himself at Hebron, bringing the charges against the people of God, and he brings those charges. I am left alone, but God says to him, verse number 4, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now, I am not going to preach on those verses again. We spent some time on that in our series on Elias. And thus, I'm just going to simply remind you, this section of biblical narrative proves the doctrine of a remnant. That in the company of national Israel, there is a saved remnant. And so, I mean, notice the proof here. God has not abandoned his people. Proof, personal testimony, scriptural witness. The point of this is that God, in covenant, saves a remnant by grace. Verse 5, Even so then at this present time, in other words, in the very same way that God kept a remnant in Elijah's day, in the very same way God has preserved a remnant in Paul's day. A remnant within the national Israel of believing individuals who've trusted in the promise of God. They are a remnant according to the election of grace. Note even the language of verse 4. I have reserved to myself. This remnant understanding is in God's sovereign purpose that He alone can save individuals, but He does so according to His covenantal purposes. You know, this will become significant, I believe, in the context of chapter 11 because, you know, when you turn to Romans chapter 11, you know what people think? They always want them to question, what does verse 26 mean? And so all Israel shall be saved. That's the question. That's always the question in chapter 11 of Romans. What does it mean? Well, before we get there and prejudge that, I will say one thing God's faithfulness to his covenant does not require national salvation, he is faithful to his covenant in preserving a remnant according to the election of grace. I'm not suggesting later on the chapter, it doesn't deal with the fact of, you know, national issues in, in Israel, but the point is simply for God to keep his covenant to Israel, what he has to do is preserve this remnant according to grace to save within Israel a spiritual seed. That's chapter 9 and that's chapter 11. A saved remnant is enough to prove God's covenantal faithfulness. Hath God cast away his people? No, says Paul. And under inspiration, he gives the proof of that in the language of a saved remnant. Thus, this remnant that is converted is, according to verse number 5 and 6, saved by grace alone. It's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then there is no more of works. That's the point. There is a graciously saved remnant that proves God's faithfulness to his covenant. Now, this section presents to us an issue that is implied here, but is dealt with more fully in Philippians chapter 3. And That's where I want to go today. Because when I thought of this section and the fact that we've dealt with Elijah in some detail, and we understand some of these concepts, I want to really get to the core of what Paul is saying here. And basically what he's saying is, he is saved, but his brethren are not. He's a child of God, but his national brethren are not. He's a member of the covenant, but his national brethren are not. It's a section that is using his own testimony by way of contrast by those of his brethren. So chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. In other words, that they might be like I am. And so the contrast here is, what's it mean to be a member of the covenant? What's it mean not to be cast away? What's it mean to be a child of God? His people, not cast away, a member of God's covenant of grace. And that's what Paul deals with in more detail in Philippians chapter 3. So turn there, please, now. Because Paul takes a language in Philippians chapter 3 of circumcision, the sign of covenant membership. That language that is used, as a, if you like, it's a, a name. What is it to be a member of God's people? It is to be part of the circumcision. It's an overarching term. The sign becomes the name. The sign of the covenant becomes the name of the covenant. It is the circumcision. And again, in the same chapter, he's warning people of the dogs, the evil workers of the concision. He's warning people, at least in part, Of Judaizers who were saying we are the people of God even though they've rejected Messiah. And Paul says no, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now this is not abstract or theoretical. Biblical theology, a lot of truth in this. But the bottom line is are you a member of God's covenant of grace? Where are you with the Lord today? When I was considering this morning, I thought to myself, I want to do nothing else, and to come on the first Lord's Day of a new year. I'm preaching an evangelistic message to all of you. That you would begin this year before God and say, Do I actually belong to God? Am I a child of God? Am I a recipient of covenantal grace and blessings? Am I off the circumcision? That's the question before us today. That's the question before you today. And if you do nothing else in the next half hour or so or less, make sure you resolve that question in your mind. Don't leave here without asking that question. So let's begin by considering the false hopes Acceptance acceptance into covenantal membership. I'm taking verse number three backwards. I'm going to begin, and you'll see, and it'll make sense going forward. Have no confidence in the flesh. Here's a mark of what it is to be a member of the covenant, that you have no confidence in the flesh. And Paul takes himself as an example of one who could have such confidence, if that was valid. Verse four. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. And so he begins to explain verse number three by, by going the way I'm going in reverse order. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. What follows then is a list of a description of those things that Paul could use as grounds of his acceptance before God. Confidence. What's that about? standing in the presence of God. What are you going to do when you stand in God's presence? Well, Paul is saying, well, here's things I could use if I was going to have confidence in the flesh. I'm going to use these things. But don't miss what he says. Verse number 7, These things that were gained to me, I count them lost for Christ. These are false grounds for confidence before God's. You see, all of us, one day, we're going to have to stand before God. And we need to know now what we're going to say then. How are we going to face God? You see, if God would mark our iniquities, who can stand? And therefore, it is imperative that we know what it is to stand before God and to have confidence in our standing before God. What are these false hopes? Well, first of all, religious heritage Paul is really remarkably special in many ways. He knows his tribe. Look what it says there, verse number 5. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I, I highlight that because over in Romans chapter 11, he says the same thing. This is the connections here. I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin. Now, why emphasize that? Well, because even in those days, there were those who were part of the Jewish nation but did not know their genealogy. And that was really important after captivity. There were those who came back from the captivity of Babylon and there was doubts regarding their genealogy and some of those, they were put out of the priesthood because they couldn't prove their genealogy. It's Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, they sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were as polluted and put from the priesthood. But not Paul. He is a Benjamite, and he knows it. And in fact, he emphasizes it all the more. Verse number 5 of Philippians 3, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What does that mean? Well, he's not a Greek Hebrew. He's not a Hellenized Hebrew. He's a purebred Hebrew. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. What a religious heritage he had. He also marks his religious rites. Again, back in verse number 5, he simply says, circumcised the eighth day. Literally, the language is, he is an eighth dayer. That was an important mark. He was part of a family that were very committed to precision when it comes to keeping their obligation. He wasn't a nine there or a ten there. He was an eighth there. Circumcised the eighth day. It's as a mark again of his heritage and his religious rights. His heritage is better than a Gentile. They may be circumcised later in life. Now he's he's pure. What follows then? Are parallels in his adult life. He begins to say about the law and about zeal and about righteousness. And so, the third thing first of all, religious heritage. Secondly, religious rites and rituals. Thirdly, religious service. Look how he describes himself as touching the law, a Pharisee. What he's emphasizing here is that he had a correct understanding and practice of the law. The Pharisees, just to remind you, a Jewish sect arising around the second century BC, and they were those who were known as the separate ones. They were the strict ones. I suppose if you're comparing religious groups in our own day, they might fit well in the Free Christian Church. Compared to the rest, we're pretty strict. Compared to other Jews, he's in the strict camp. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was strict regarding observing the Mosaic law. Strict regarding associations and separation. Strict in trying to maintain a a rigid covenantal relationship with God. He describes himself to those who would would have known him from the beginning, would testify, uh, Acts chapter 26, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a pharisee. Religious service. Zeal. He says here, verse number six, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. No one could outdo Paul regarding religious zeal. He killed and imprisoned the church of Christ. Religious performance, fifthly. It's also here. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, Blameless. Paul is not asserting the possibility of sinless perfection. What he's saying here is that touching the law, he was without reproach. No one could look at Paul's life and see the externals of his life and say, he is not consistent. He's not a hypocrite. What they could see and practice is what he professed to be the truth. He's like the rich young ruler, he's kept the law. He hasn't grasped, of course, the internal demands of the law, but he's, he's kept the law externally. Now, all of these things are false grounds for acceptance with God. And there are some very important implications. We must not rest our hopes of covenantal membership on similar grounds. And yet we may do so. All our religious heritage and religious performance fades into insignificance in comparison with Paul's. Yet somehow many today think of themselves as good living Gentiles and they'll be okay with God. You know, there are various groups of people out there. There are some who know their sin. They understand that they've sinned against a holy God. They, they get that. But for various reasons, they choose to live in enmity with God rather than righteousness with God. But, of course, you know so many others. And they actually believe, they actually genuinely believe that if they stand before God, God will see them and say, you're not so bad after all. And they believe that they'll escape judgment because they've done one good thing, or a few good things, or enough good things. And they believe their sin is not going to count it before God. These things, and this is the practicalities for you who are Christian today, they must have no place in the grounds of your assurance. And this is where it gets difficult. You think of verse number six touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Well, is that not a good thing? Is, is that not still our desire? Is that not even a convocation of elders and deacons in the New Testament church? That they're blameless, above reproach, and the standard of their blamelessness is the law of God. So what's the problem here? Of course, we understand that the heart is not right. But here's the difficulty. Unregenerate people can keep the external demands of the law the rich young ruler, and Paul. They don't understand the heart of the law. They don't understand the internals of the law. But there may be those, and if someone was to follow their lives day by day, they would see them living essentially externally upright lives. They read their Bible. They pray with their family. They come to church. They do all of these things all of their lives, and yet they die and go to hell. It's possible to have external obedience and yet still be lost. And so I understand that it's important to live a godly life in front of others. It's important to be blameless. But that must never, ever, ever be part of the foundation of your assurance. A blameless life does indeed serve to give evidence of God's grace, but it is not foundational in assurance and must never be. Paul takes it and he says it's of no gain. It's not part of the compass I have of standing before God. And so if you're a stand before God, do you for even the smallest part begin to describe your heritage, your background, your religious zeal, your religious service. None of those things must be part of your testimony before God's. We see righteousness in 1 John, but it is used by the apostle to encourage the people in their doubts and discouragements To say, yes, look what God's grace has done in your life. But it's never used to give them the defense before God. I deserve to be in heaven because look how blameless I am. I hope you get the distinction there. It must not be foundational in any way when it comes to our assurance before God. And we must be careful that we don't Expect these external religious signs before we accept someone as a child of God. The children of God are those who trust in Christ. The external things will follow. And they often do, and they should do. But the minute you trust in Christ, you're a child of God before any religious service just ask the thief on the cross to give you his testimony when you meet him in heaven. And so the false grounds are those. But what therefore are the firm grounds? And here, uh, th- these things are very familiar to you. And I- I'm going to move through them very quickly. Look what it says again in Philippians chapter 3. Going backwards again. They are those who rejoice in Christ Jesus. Uh, th- this word rejoice is not so much describing... Your emotional state of joy in the Lord. It's a term that denotes confidence and boasting. It's used alongside this idea. Rejoice in Christ, but no confidence in the flesh. The no confidence is the opposite of rejoicing. And so the boasting, often negative, but here positive, is a boasting in Christ Jesus. In other words... The only hope of being part of God's family, being part of God's people, is found outside of ourselves, in the person and work of another, namely Christ Jesus. All the religious performance, it's nothing for getting Christ, verse number 7. And getting Christ in verse number 7 is described in verse number 9 as being found in Him not having my own righteousness, which is the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. I want you to turn back now, please, to Romans chapter 10. Again, my desire is to show you that I'm not just drawing this connection between Philippians 3 and Romans 10 and 11. Arbitrarily, there is a clear connection here. The contrast between the saved and the lost is is emphasized in Romans 10, verse number 3, in similar words to Philippians chapter 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. See how, how closely aligned those concepts are? Paul's saying, look at all my righteousness. Look at all I've done. It's nothing at all compared to getting Christ. And so he submits to God's righteousness and therefore finds righteousness, contrasted to those who pursue their own righteousness but find nothing. All they find is worthless. What he finds is eternally valuable. And so you see again, back in Philippians chapter 3, you see the source of this. The source of this righteousness, as you well know, is God. That's what he's saying, being found in him and not having my own righteousness, verse 9, but the righteousness which is of God. This alien righteousness, a righteousness outside himself provided for him. We've got to press this point home to the lost. We are of the stricter sort in our denomination. And there may well be some, and they come into our congregations and they think to themselves, well, I've got to make certain standards before I accept it in this congregation. We must emphasize dear child of God, we've got to look them in the eyes and say to them in the eyes, the gospel is not about doing, it's about done. The gospel is not about what you do, it's about what's been done for you. And we must say to them, here, here's our righteousness. It's a gift that you receive. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You certainly can achieve it yourselves. But it's provided for you. It's outside of yourself. And it can be taken gladly. I'm not, I'm not talking here about sanctification. I'm not suggesting that people come and, and they come to Christ and that they stay in the mess of their sin. That's not the point. But they come in the mess of their sins. And we don't say to them, do this, 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 and then get Christ. No, they come in their mess and we say, here's righteousness. It's not yours, it's Christ's. But it can be yours today. In your mess before God, you can stand accepted because of what Christ has done for you. Folks, you know this. But do we preach it enough? Do we announce it enough to the lost? Do we tell ourselves it enough? Christ is the end of the law. This is what you must be to be accepted by God. You must be righteous. But it's in Christ. The source, the nature of this righteousness is in Christ's person and work, secondly. So the source is from God. The nature of it, you know this very, very well, it's Christ's person and work. The entire Christ. He is made unto us Righteousness. It is through the faith of Christ, verse number 9. And the idea is, I'm not going back over this. You've been through this over the years in this church. It is not describing Christ's faith. It is describing the believer's faith in Christ. That's what it means. It's our faith, but that faith is in Christ. And so the righteousness offered to us is his righteousness. His obedience to the law. Perfect conformity to the law. His submission to the law's penalty. He dies. He lives. As Bonner says, upon another's life, upon another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That's the nature of this righteousness. Thirdly, the reception of the righteousness. It is, of course, by faith. It is the righteousness which is of God by faith, received by faith. Again, that's very, very important theologically. Go back to Romans chapter 10. So Romans 11. I don't know. We might come back to verse 5 and 6 in more detail next Lord's Day. But just for now, notice this. This remnant is a remnant according to the election of grace. And then verse 6 emphasizes that it is by grace. And the contrast between grace is between grace and works. Grace is not works, works is not grace what does Paul said earlier? Go back to Romans chapter 4 now. So if, if you know me, this, this is what I, I really, really, really love in the Bible. When things tie together so well, and you see these, these beautiful lines of thought, and it, it, this is where I sit in my study, and I, I have sort of a glory moment. and go, yes, this is so exciting. Now this is another one of those. You see, Paul in Philippians 3 is given the detail of Romans 11. He's given the foundational detail as to his own experience. He came to Christ, but others didn't. What does it look like? Well, it's by grace. And then look at chapter 4, verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not... Note this time, him that worketh not, and the contrast is not, but receive grace, but is, but believeth on him, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The point that Paul is making, Romans 4, Romans 11, Philippians chapter 3, is that faith is not a work. Faith is a gift of God given to the newborn soul that they would take Christ as offered. But faith is not a meritorious work to get us to acceptance of God. Faith is receiving all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's not a work of merit. It's an action that comes by God's grace alone. And so... Sometimes I ask the question when I speak to those who are getting baptized. I say, if you're going to stand before God and you're going to say, I'm accepted before God, what will you say? And sometimes, again, this is not a fault. It's just a matter of understanding. They will say, because I believed in Jesus Christ. Well, that's true. But don't word it that way. You're accepted before God because of what Christ has done. Because what Christ has done, and that alone, that's the only ground, the only foundation of your assurance. It's the only hope you have before God. It's all of Christ, nothing of self. But all that Christ did, that you receive by faith. But that faith is not a work, it's a mark of God's grace. So by faith is by grace, not of works. Lest any man should boast. The reception. That is the firm grounds, the firm hope of acceptance before God is Christ alone. And finally, just a couple of comments on this. What is the full enjoyment of this? And with this, we'll close. Back to Philippians chapter 3. What are these marks? So, what does it mean to be a member of God's covenant? What's it looking for, Paul, in contrast to the Jews? Well, he's not trusting his works, His, his hope's in Christ alone. And he is one who worships in spirit. Verse number 3 again. We are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit. Now You'll know immediately that language makes us think of the well and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. That God in his purpose is seeking such to worship him. Those who worship in spirit and in truth. The mark of those who are the children of God is genuine, biblical, spiritual worship. Not with the mouth only, but with the heart. This is not a ground for acceptance, it's not a ground for assurance but it is the evidence of those who have been born again of the Spirit of God. We're brought into covenantal communion with God, and it is our right and our privilege to worship God as the priesthood of all believers. We are those who sing praise to God. I'm not going to go back over Wednesday's sermon and prayer meeting, but I encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, go to Sermon Audio and have a listen to old prayers for a new year. And part of my burden for our congregation is that we reaffirm our conviction of worshiping God properly. How did you do today? Can you remember the hymns we sang? Can you think of any part of those hymns? Were you actually mentally engaged in worship this morning? And beyond that, did your heart echo your mouth? This is where I've got to be very careful. Because you'd all go through here, crawling on the ground and dust. We have remaining sin, and we, we struggle with this. Our minds are so distracted. We find it so hard to concentrate for a time and sing the praises of God. And so let me just ask it this way. Was there one single moment today when you really praised God? I'm not asking for three hymns and and five verses of all three hymns. Was there one single point today when the words in your heart came into unison and you really praised your gods? Because if you experienced that for one moment in that hymn, then that's a mark of God's grace in your life. And yeah, you've got to work on abounding more and more as I have to as your, as your preacher. But if you can't worship in the Spirit, then you're not part of God's family. You don't get a pass on this one. Not because I say so, but because God's Word says so. Christ came into the world to seek worshippers, to worship in spirit and truth. And if you've no desire to be in the house of God and no desire to sing God's praise, major problem. And when you come to the house of God and you can't worship in spirit, major concern. These are genuine issues. Not that you find yourself put in the dust, but that you recognize This is what God says, and it may well be required that you get before God and say, Lord, I have sinned in this area for for many, many years, and me my sins. Thank you, Lord, for those those moments when I understand what it is to praise your name, when I genuinely worship in spirit. So please understand the caveats, all the qualifications." This is not a ground for assurance, but it is a mark of those who are the children of God. And Paul takes that, his top three features. What does it mean to be a child of God? These are the top three. And he begins with the worship of God. And so as a psalmist prays in Psalm 119, Let my soul live and it shall praise thee. Your heart is beating today to praise God. And if you are not engaging in the praise of God, then you're not using the heartbeats that God has given you properly. Life is a precious gift. Don't waste it. Don't waste it on false religious performance. And don't waste it on the toys of this world, as the hymn writer said in that hymn. Don't waste your life. Give it to the glory of God today. Let's bow together, please, in prayer. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the clarity of your word regarding our only hope. Our hope is in the Lord. It's only found in Christ and His perfect righteousness. Oh Lord, we see our sin. Even in this area of worship, we, we see our sin and we're so thankful for Christ who worshipped you perfectly all of His life. And so pardon our iniquities for they are great today. Do so for your name's sake. Help us, oh God, to know more and more of what it is to live for Christ. But if there are some in this gathering and they don't know the Lord... Oh, Lord, lay open their hearts today. Cause them to see their sin. Cause them to see their need of righteousness. Cause them to run to Christ Jesus. Save lost souls, we pray. Glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.